Okay, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to look at a, a section where we left off last Sunday, so we got as far as verse 8, actually the last two Sundays, uh, we kind of moved around a little bit here, and so uh, we have verses 9 and 10. So again, this is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Will you please stand as we read God's word together and follow along with me? Peter writes under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. You may be seated. <clears throat> I just want to say, as I read over these verses this past week and actually numerous times earlier and kind of setting the context for 1 Peter chapter 1, chapter 2, I can't do these verses justice. I just want to confess that this morning. They just blew me away. So I read them over and over again. They're just so powerful as the Spirit of God is making this application now to these people that probably feel like the lowest people in the world, the lowest people in society. And then you look at verses 9 and 10, and Peter is saying, no, you are these people if you know Jesus Christ. And it's just incomprehensible, really, apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from knowing that this is the Word of God. This is true. And so... I, I hope as you look at these verses, you come to it with that same awe, that same sense of reverence, that this is the holy word of God. And what was true of Peter's first century audience, if you know Jesus Christ here this morning, is also true of you. And so this is vital for us to understand. Let's, let's ask God to make that happen. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for this amazing truth that we read as we take so many of these Old Testament uh, titles and designations and, and see them now as they're applied by the Holy Spirit to anyone who is in Christ. And Lord God, I just pray that, that you would do a supernatural thing this morning, that you would open our hearts to this truth and just, just lodge it there. Teach us, encourage us, we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. One plus one equals three, right? Two plus two equals five. Three plus three equals seven. Now, we've got a lot of uh, arithmetic, mathematical students in here just learning some of these concepts. What's wrong with this picture? It should be pretty obvious to all of us in this room, right? It just doesn't add up, and it never will add up. Well, that same conclusion, it doesn't add up, really can crop up into a lot of very common life experiences that all of us share. Think about it for a moment. 
Something just doesn't seem right as you walk out of Fred Meyer. Maybe it was yesterday. You've got the, the crumpled up receipt now in your hand and you're kind of scanning over it. Okay, I bought two pairs of work socks. You know they were on sale yesterday. I've got some old spice deodorant, a rotisserie chicken, and it shouldn't have cost that much. It just doesn't add up. Or you measured the baseboard molding in your house two times while you were at Home Depot. Now you get back home, all your tools are on the floor, you've got everything set up, and you're two feet short. Something isn't adding up. It's a favorite recipe you've made so many times that you laugh about it. You could probably do it blindfolded in your sleep. But the muffins this time came out dry and really strange tasting. As you look back over the things that are spread out over the counter that you've used in your recipe, something you're shaking your head just isn't adding up right. It's just a part of life though, right? Something is off. It happens often. A miscalculation, a, a miscounting, a mis mismeasurement. And so because of all of those possibilities, the entire equation then is just completely thrown off. It, it doesn't work. It will never work. It, it can't fulfill. It doesn't add up. But as we think about that truth, as we think about that very common experience that we all share, and maybe you even experienced it today or yesterday in some form, there are far more important further reaching matters here than overpriced socks and wasted muffins. And those are the false equations that run very deep into how we view things like success and and happiness and fulfillment in life, how we see our real place and our purpose. And there are no lack of hundreds, maybe thousands of voices that we hear every day relentlessly pulling us in a very wrong direction, lying to us, feeding vulnerable minds on ideas and values that will never, ever add up. Remember what Peter wrote in chapter 1 in verses 13 and 14. He said this about our minds, about our thinking. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. If we advance a few chapters to chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says these words to us that should be so familiar. Be of sober spirit, he says. Be on the alert. These are intense commands in the original language. And then he adds, your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter highlighting the fact that all of this is in the context of a spiritual battle. Our enemy, though, can never alter our real position in Jesus Christ, what Peter is talking about at the beginning of chapter 2. Remember we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 28, when Jesus said, No one shall snatch them out of my hand. 
He can't take us. He can't change our salvation status, but he can certainly persuade us to act as though our security is somewhere completely different, somewhere that will never add up. Isn't that true? That's why Peter reminds us and reminds his first century audience that the only equation that will ever add up every time, all the time, you plus Jesus Christ in a born-again saving relationship, that's the equation. You plus Jesus Christ equals your timeless, unalterable, biblical identity. And that's what Peter is talking about in verses 9 and 10. So let's look at what is that identity then that he is referring to. Number one, he says in verse 9, you are a chosen race. And that's exactly the way that he puts it. If you look down at verse 9, he begins the verse, but you are a chosen race. It's both personal and collective. So he's saying you on a personal level, if you know Jesus Christ, if he's your savior, you've been born again, you reference back to chapter one, he made all that distinction. But it's also collective, you as in this particular case, the scattered brothers and sisters of Christ all over the place that had to flee your home country, had to leave your, your homes, your jobs, your parents, your friends. You collectively who know Jesus Christ, you are, number one, a chosen race. But as I just mentioned, verse 9 begins with a three-letter word, a little tiny word, the word but, which is a conjunction in English, and highlighting what here? The contrast, the contrast. So you go back to verse 8, remember what that said? And referencing the Old Testament from Isaiah chapter 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble, those who stumble over the Lord Jesus Christ, who discard him, who ignore him, who reject him, because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom, they are also appointed. And we look at verse 10, for, what, for you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So there's the language kind of like bookends here of contrast, but providing that, the little word but, B-U-T, providing that sense of contrast. You were blindly chasing lies. You were lining up to do what everyone else is doing, but, Peter says, no more. You are not some independent, random, evolved, big bang product. You are, he says, a chosen race. This language extending back to the Old Testament where we find similar phraseology in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 15, Isaiah chapter 43, where terms are used like my chosen, my people by God, not applying exclusively to Israel, but to believing Gentiles as well. Read Romans chapter 9, 10, 11. Chosen. You are a chosen, a chosen race. I want you to think about that for a moment. Do you get this? Understand the biblical meaning here is applied to, when we think of chosen, 
with the emphasis, the highlight, the spotlight on the chooser. So you are the chosen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've gone over that in 1 Peter chapter 1. Before the foundations of the world, God had chosen you. It was part of his pre-Genesis plan. Before there was even created men or women or children on the earth. But God is the chooser. And this is so different we need to understand from the way that we normally think of the word to choose, the verb form, or to be the chosen. Now think about that for a moment. In your own life, when you use that word or you engage in that kind of activity, what happens to you when you are choosing an employer, if you're running a business or you're in the part of the business where you are in charge of hiring somebody, you're in personnel? What kinds of things are you looking for? When you're choosing a contractor, if you're building something or adding on to your home, or you're choosing a college to further your education, you're choosing a mechanic to fix your broken down car, you're choosing a restaurant to have an enjoyable meal tonight, Sunday night, somewhere in town. Think about all those different scenarios. What is most important to you when you're in the act of choosing? You have a certain criteria, don't you? Are you choosing an an employee? You have a definite criteria. Somebody comes in and they're they're going to be an an aeronautic engineer. Okay, you're not going to hire somebody that only has fast food experience. You're looking for a certain criteria. When you hire a mechanic to fix your car and and you think it's something extremely serious, you're not going to hire a guy that's only worked on lawnmowers. Right? There's a criteria there. What is God's criteria then? He says, you are a chosen race. What is his criteria? See, we've got to turn our brains around because we're not doing the choosing And we are also not setting ourselves up as being chosen worthy. But the emphasis, the spotlight in Peter's message here in God's word in verse 9 is on the chooser himself. The chooser alone has the right to regard us as a chosen race. And God himself bases that. His only criteria is his character. That's his criteria, not you. You don't have to get all cleaned up and look nice and and make sure your resume, you know, go back and erase a bunch of stuff and reword it so it looks really good. And then say, God, here I am. Choose me. Come on, choose me. Remember in gym class in high school or elementary school? I don't know if they do this anymore. It was a horrible thing. But they'd have somebody, the captain, right? They'd, they'd call on somebody and then say, choose sides or choose teams. And so you'd always have the more non-athletic kids just kind of stand there, you know, like, okay, great. And you're either next to last or last or they treat you like you're invisible. And, and so you feel all of that stress and that tension. God isn't doing that. See, that's our experience, our human experience of choosing and being chosen. But God bases his choosing on his own sovereign agape love. 
In other words, let's put it in common English. He chooses us simply because he wants to. That's what the Bible teaches. Is that not a phenomenal thing? You are chosen in the Lord Jesus Christ simply because God wanted to choose you. Not on the basis of being chosen worthy. Well, what's the second thing that he tells us? He says in the verse, you are a royal priesthood. If you look at verse 9, you are a royal priesthood. Well, if you were with us last Sunday, you know that we already looked at this amazing truth of the fact that we are a priesthood in verse 5. But here he adds a different designation to it. He adds something before the word priesthood, before it was holy, now it's royal. Isn't that interesting? You are a royal priesthood. Well, what does that mean? Well, the, the word that we've translated into English as royal in the original Greek language usually describes the residence that royalty lives in. So right away, what do we think of? We think of a royal, uh, a kingly residence or a royal palace, right? We might even extend this idea down from verse 5 that we looked at in Peter's previous description, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for there's the holy priesthood. So could we extend that somewhat and almost by implication say we are a living palace of the king? We are vital living stones. Remember, these are alive, so we're not talking about church buildings. We're not talking about an actual structure. We're talking about men and women and children who know the Lord Jesus Christ, who are living stones on this earth in his kingdom. We are spiritual royalty as adopted sons and daughters of King Jesus, who, guess what? If you were with us as we went through almost three years of the book of Revelation, will one day reign with him on the earth. I'll remind you of that Revelation chapter 20, beginning at verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus. Jesus, and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and and of Christ, and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, hopefully that blew your mind the first time we looked at that, about a year and a half ago. What an amazing thing. Maybe it wasn't that long ago. What an amazing thing to think about. Adopted sons and daughters of King Jesus. We are designated as royalty. We are living stones in his growing kingdom palace here on earth. And in the book of Revelation before the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and earth are made, we will reign with him for a thousand years. You catch that little word reign? We will reign with him as his adopted royalty because of Jesus. Thirdly, what does he tell us in verse 9? Back to 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, 
you are a holy nation. You are a holy nation. Now, this was first applied to Israel, but now extends to all of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are born again, as Peter talked about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says, you are holy. You are a holy nation. Now, when we think of that word holy, if you were here last Sunday, we talked about words, and we talked about the different things that come into our minds when we hear words, especially Christianese-type words. When we think about the word holy, sometimes I think we have a tendency to only apply it as some kind of behavior that we think about that might be under that category, holy, or maybe some kind of mystical quality around it, thereby, for the most part, dodging it as any part of our own self-description or identity. But we miss something important here. Because in, in this, he's talking about a designation. He's talking about a title. He's talking about a description. He's talking about identity. He's talking about your security. He's not talking about behavior. He's not talking about having to maintain a certain list of behavior to be able to wear this designation holy. This is positional. This is, this is a title. Read Ephesians chapter 1. It gives us one long chapter of a description. It's like a, a run-on sentence, verse after verse after verse. And he's describing what really that holy designation is. This is who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are holy. How did you become holy? You say, I'm holy? I don't feel holy. I don't feel like my life is holy. I made mistakes before I came to church this morning. I just don't feel that way. It has nothing to do with the way that you feel. When you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness became your righteousness, you were thereby at that moment designated holy. When your sins were forgiven and your sins were taken off of you and they were placed onto the Lord Jesus Christ, you became holy in him. Holy means literally to set apart, to be separate. So God is saying, as my people, this is part of your identity. I have done this. You haven't done it. We can't set us ourselves apart. In some practical ways, we can by being careful how we live. But that's something that Peter talks about separately. Here it's a title. It's a title that comes again because God said, you are a holy nation. Now he says you're a holy nation. What does that mean? That means it's not just you and I. It's not just limited to Evergreen Community Church. That means at this very moment, there are other inhabitants, there are other citizens of this holy nation meeting all over the place. There are people in Portland. There are people in Gresham. There are people in Vancouver. There are people in Southern California. There are people in New York. There are people in Chicago. There are people in London. There are people in China. There are people in Australia, all over the world, who also comprise a holy nation. I remember when this really blew me away. Soon after my wife and I got married. I hadn't been a Christian very long. And we went over to Liberia, West Africa, because that's where her parents were ministering as missionaries. 
And while we were there, we were there for three weeks, one of the things that my wife's father wanted to do was have a jungle experience. So we went back and took long roads through some of the densest jungle in the world in West Africa and drove for hours and hours and hours. At one point, a bridge was out. Dad and I had to get out and reconstruct a bridge and drive over it. Eventually, we got to this little tiny village out in the middle of nowhere and spent the night there. The next day, we went to church. Oh, you know what church is, right? Not in West Africa. I mean, we did church West African style. I didn't understand a word that they said. I didn't understand anything they were reading from the Bible because it was in their own dialect. But I'll tell you what really struck me, and I'll never forget it, is sitting next to those people. There was a tear in my eye because I thought, I don't understand what they're saying, but I understand what they're saying. I don't understand their order of service or exactly what's going on, but I completely understand the bond that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever had that experience with somebody? Or maybe you just run into somebody in a store and you get talking a little while and, and maybe you stop or maybe they stop and say, are you a believer? There's just something you can sense about it. Guess what? You're part of a holy nation. And we went over that in the book of Revelation, didn't we? How dramatic that is, how there are representatives from every tongue and every nation and they come together and their soul bond is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, fourthly here, and I'm going to end with this, you are a people for God's own possession. We see that in verse 9. You are a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then adds this clarification of verse 10. I love it. For you once were not a people. Is that true? But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Kind of an echoing there of Hosea chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. You are a people for God's own possession. Possession here, interestingly, can also be translated as treasure in English. It literally also highlights something in the original language that says, that clarifies, this is something that has been purchased. This is something that has been paid for in full. The idea being because the purchaser just really, really wants to have it. This is our God who called us out of darkness by his mercy to become his own. Amazing, isn't it? Think about how we identify ourselves sometimes when we're in a, could be an office type setting. It could be a reunion type setting. It could just be anywhere where you don't always know who the people are and you get those nice little stickers or those name tags on you that says, hi, my name is, and it might even say where you're from or what your position is in the company. Imagine that designation because that's all a lot of strangers are going to know about you. What your name is and what you do for a living, that's your identity. How many people walk up to each other, especially guys, and say, so what do you do for a living? 
So what do you do? Instantly, that's your identity. By the way that you communicate it, by the way you react, you're going you're gonna to set a picture there, right? Well, what if that name tag just read, I'm his? I'm his. And guess what? That name tag could be on you 24 hours a day. You'd have to peel it off and put it on your pajamas. <laughs> You'd have to put it on those soiled clothes that you like to wear outside when you're carrying around firewood and digging in the garden. I'm his. It's there all the time. Maybe we could regard it as some kind of spiritual tattoo. I'm his. Didn't God say that? A people for his own possession, his own treasure. And if we go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, there's also this sense of, of being guarded and protected, which is also inherent in the very description that Peter's giving us in verses 9 and 10. God's protecting it. In other words, it's not going to change. It's not a people for my own possession today, but maybe not tomorrow. You can peel that name tag off and only wear that on good days. Only wear that on really spiritual days when you've done all your devotional reading that you intended to do and, and you've, you've prayed to the Lord for a certain amount of time and you've just been really well behaved, a good boy or girl in Jesus Christ. Only then can you wear that name tag. That's not what he says. We can't read that wrong. This is, again, coming from the designator, the one who is giving us the title. That's where the spotlight is. Not you and I somehow becoming worthy of being his possession, but being his possession based on his own sovereign agape choice of us. You are mine. I read a a fictional account of somebody who came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It was in a novel. Yeah, I'll reveal it. Frank Peretti novel. It's going way back, rereading, because they're so powerful. And the scene just, it made me literally cry when I read the account, the way that he described it, though fictional, it was based on biblical reality when somebody came to know Jesus Christ. And you have the, the demons being defeated and the angelic host just anticipating, standing on the edge of heaven just, just with bated breath, wondering what's going to happen. And at the very moment of salvation, the angelic host just erupts in joy. And the cry from heaven is, from the Savior of our souls, that one is mine. Can't you picture it? You think anything less than that happens? Doesn't it, it tell us that there's rejoicing in heaven when even one lost sheep is brought home? And what does that rejoicing mean? Is it kind of like, oh, another one got saved? <laughs> I mean, it's so understated in scripture, but is it really? Can you imagine the heavenly party when one soul is timetable, sometimes early in life, sometimes midlife, sometimes when life is almost gone. And he says, that one is mine. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? 
a person for my own possession, both the church of Jesus Christ purchased by his blood corporately and individually. You and I who know Christ, that child is mine. That's our identity. That's what Peter wants his first century audience to understand. That's what God, by extension across the ages to you and I in the Lord Jesus Christ, wants us to understand. These designations, these titles have been given us by the only one who knows the perfect equation, right? Everything else, you've tried it. You've tried to come up with some kind of identity, something that would feel good. And it doesn't ever add up, does it? A little bit of success over here, a little monetary gain over here, a little collection of material things over here, a little bit of recognition over here, a little bit of popularity over here, lots of friends over here. It never quite adds up, does it? This adds up. Because the equation is written by a holy and perfect and sovereign God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you for your living and powerful and eternal word. We thank you for who you have made us in your son, the Lord Jesus. Though in no way do we deserve it. We are so grateful to be adopted sons and daughters in your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.